we are going to be going through Matthew 27, verse 57 through 28. Um, so if you have your Bible, start flipping there. We are uh, drawing towards the end, right, of Jesus' life and ministry here on earth. And um, just as far as the Gospels are concerned, and it seems like we've been in this book for about eight years or so at this point. But yeah, we are in the final couple weeks uh, it is a long passage, so we're going to take it bit by bit. So uh, right now we're going to go through verses 57 through 61, and I will pray, and then we'll continue. Sound good? Awesome. All right. Read with me here. When it was evening, a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph came, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. He approached Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Then Pilate ordered that it be released. So Joseph took the body, wrapped it in clean, fine linen, and placed it in his new tomb, which he had cut into the rock. He left after rolling a great stone against the entrance of the tomb, and Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were seated there facing the tomb. This is God's word. Are you ready? Are you ready? This is God's Word. Let's get excited just a little bit. A little enthusiasm. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. God, I pray that uh, your presence would be made known here this morning. That your Word would illuminate our hearts. That we would discover more of your character. And in so doing, we discover more about uh, the purpose you have for us as well. Lord, we know that there is none of this, no understanding of your word, no application of your word, no living out your word without your Holy Spirit. So, Spirit, come. Dwell here in us. Lord, we pray that these words, if said of you, would be etched upon our hearts for all of eternity. Whatever is said of me may be forgotten. We love you. We give you this day and honor and praise in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. So we are approaching the end of the gospel, as we said. And we are in the midst of Jesus being brought down from the cross at this point, right? So his life has culminated in the crucifixion. That he gave out this loud cry, it is finished. And Dominic took us through the crucifixion of Christ last week. And the final cries of Jesus, when he did yell that statement, it is finished. It is finished finished. He took the sin and its eternal effects and thwarted it, right? His, his yelling of it is finished kind of signaled the finality to sin and its effects on us. The redemption is finished. The finality of sin and the penalty of sin is paid in full. The weight of sin has been lifted. Death is destroyed under the boot of Jesus's powerful sacrifice. And these are things we get to live in. These are things that, that, that affect us deeply, that our sin has been paid in full. The cross is such good news, you guys. The cross is such good news. Our sins are dealt with. And, as, and, and kind of mirroring the cross, we get to live this life of dying to ourselves, right? Taking what is old about us, taking the sins that would consume us, and nailing them to the cross with Jesus. And we get to sit at the foot of the cross here, and we get to dwell in the great news that followers of Jesus get to have their sin dealt with. Amen? It is a beautiful, beautiful thing, and it is good news. However, the characters in the Bible 
Joseph of Arimathea, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, the disciples of Jesus, they don't know that yet. They don't know that yet. The people in this story, in this passage right now, they're staring at the grave of Jesus as if he is never coming back. And that's a really important detail because we, we're kind of in the future, right? We're, we're, we're here. Like, we have this, right? We can kind of get the spoilers. We understand that Jesus is resurrected. We understand that Jesus has come back in victory and that death has no power. But for the characters in, in the Bible right now, the disciples, Mary, everyone right here that is facing this, to them, the cross is bad news, to us, it's good news, because we understand what's going to happen in like just a couple verses, right? But to them, the cross is bad news, because dead is dead to them. Dead is dead. And the disciples, and to the disciples, Jesus is dead. There's no expectation of the resurrection that's about to occur, especially if you've just experienced what they've experienced. Can you imagine the brutality of what they just had to experience? They have been walking with who they believe to be the Messiah for three years, following him diligently, coming up with all of these dreams in their heads of, oh, Jesus is going to take the throne, and then he is going to bring the kingdom of God here, and he is going to thwart Rome. We're no longer going to be under slavery and oppression. <clears throat> so they get to live in this for three years and follow Jesus. He's the Messiah. He's my king. He's my best friend. All that in one night to just be flipped upside down on them. That event in the garden when, when Jesus is seized and taken, they, they, they scattered. And their expectations for the future have been thwarted. Their best friend, their master, and their king has just been brutally murdered. And yeah, when, when, when Jesus is, was on the cross, as we learned last week, when he is hanging there, there's this thunderous earthquake, there's a thunderous mourning of the earth, followed by a four-inch thick veil and the temple being torn in half. There's a dramatic scene that occurs, right? There's a very dramatic scene, but the disciples weren't really there for that. You notice that? The disciples weren't really there for that, because in the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus is being taken, they just scatter, they ran away. They all scattered and hid when Jesus was arrested, and all but John fled. So not only are they living in the loss of Jesus, but living in the regret that they weren't there for his final hours. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine not only your best friend, your king, your master, being brutally murdered, but, but with the knowledge that you ran away, and weren't there for them? The amount of despair and sadness, right, that is going on right here, it's all a bummer. There's no good news yet. We know it's good news. They don't. So Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, it says that they were facing the tomb. They were standing beside the grave as if he were never coming back. Just sitting there and, and, and staring at it, saying, it's over. It's over. And then make a big deal about this, because it's important for us to wrap our heads around the fact that the resurrection was not necessarily as predictable of an ending as we might think 
at the time, right? It wasn't as predictable of an ending as we might think, because for the cross, for us, outside of the story, we can skip ahead, but they can't. So they're in this state of despair and loss and having no clue what the future or the present really holds for them. They're in this state of flux right now, where, where everything that they had planned for for the future is kind of like in imbalance, and in the present, they're kind of scared to do anything at this point, because they were followers of Jesus. Maybe they'll come for them next, and so there's, there's this kind of there's this state of isolation and par- like being paralyzed right now. Do you, do you sense that? They're paralyzed. And that's important for us to realize because that state that they are in, the state of being paralyzed in, with loss and helplessness, that's a picture of our hearts apart from Jesus. A heart without the resurrection of Christ is vulnerable to the tragedy of sin, death, and loss. It's a vulnerable place. It's a vulnerable place to have your God die. And so without the resurrection, there's really that no stamp of like, yes, right? We're good. And so they're vulnerable at this point. And we actually see this in the disciples. In John chapter 20, in John chapter 20, verse 19, it says that the disciples had actually locked themselves in a room. They had locked themselves in the room because they were too afraid of the world at this point, right? Because their king, their master had just been murdered. They were followers of his. They scattered. They have no idea who's coming for them next. They were namely, actually, they were really afraid of the religious leaders because they had just murdered Jesus, and so they have no clue what they're about to do to them. So they're afraid of the Pharisees at this point, which is really sad, but also a little ironic and funny considering what we're about to read right here in verse 62. So read with me. The next day, which followed the preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember that while this deceiver was still alive, he said, After three days I will rise again. So give orders that the tomb be made secure until the third day. Otherwise his disciples may come, steal him, and tell the people. He has been raised from the dead, and the last deception will be worse than the first. You have a guard of soldiers, Pilate told them. Go and make it as secure as you know how. And they went and secured the tomb by setting a seal on the stone and placing the guard. So we're in this interesting kind of like cold war happening right now, right? Where the disciples are afraid of the Pharisees, and the Pharisees are afraid of the disciples, right? So the disciples are cowering in fear, locked in a room, afraid that the Pharisees are going to get them. And the Pharisees are scared of the disciples, that they are going to somehow thwart this, like, guard and move this, like, four-ton stone out of the way and then steal Jesus' body, right? What neither of them know is that they're both afraid of the other, right? And so we're in this kind of, like, scary time right now. Where no one knows who's going to make the first move. It's almost like this, this calm before the storm. And I want us to hone in really quick on the pre-resurrection state of the disciples. The pre-resurrection state of the disciples for a moment. They're cowards. They're hiding. They have no power behind them. They're running away in the face of danger, denying Jesus in front of little girls and hiding in a room with the doors locked. Like, Peter even goes a little further. He just gets on a boat and goes, right? 
So, so the pre-resurrection state of the disciples right now is that of cowardice and powerlessness, right? And there is a very clear distinction between the disciples before the resurrection and after the resurrection. Does that make sense? There's pre-resurrection disciples and there's post-resurrection disciples, and they are like totally different people. Totally different people, because afterwards, you see the boldness in every single one of them, do we not? We see boldness proclaiming the gospel unabashedly, being beaten, singing hymns in prisons, and preaching in front of thousands of people with tongues of fire. And so what does that all mean? It means that the resurrection of Jesus is a big deal. It's a big deal. Something occurs in us as a result of the resurrection of Jesus. It means that the resurrection of Christ has a serious supernatural effect on the hearts of those that follow and believe in him. It's not just for show. Jesus didn't just do it because he's like, hey, I'm God, everyone, peace, right? He, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't this showy thing, this flashy thing. The resurrection is meant to change and mold and shape his disciples, us. And Paul the Apostle believed in the power of the resurrection so strongly, the resurrection, that he actually said this in 1 Corinthians 15, 17 through 19. He said this, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Those then who have fallen asleep in Christ have also perished. If we have put our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone. That's a big deal, right? That Paul would say, without the resurrection of Jesus, we are to be pitied more than anybody else on this earth. Our faith in Christ, our Christianity, hinges upon the resurrection of Christ from the dead. Without it, death has the final word, not him. And that's important for us as believers who identify with Christ. And Paul says, if we identify with him just in this life, right? If we're just trying to like be as moral of people as we possibly can, kind of like Jesus was, if we're just trying to kind of shift and change our actions to be followers of Jesus now, but we are not living in the resurrected life of Jesus, if Christ is not risen from the dead and he has not given us his power, our, our whole religion is a sham. And that, that's, a, that's a really strong and bold statement. And it's one right now that the, the disciples are kind of living in, you know? They're living in that right now. They're living in that pre-resurrection without kind of any guidance type Christianity. Their hearts are in flux. Their futures are uncertain. Friday comes and the disciples are sad, right? To say the least. Saturday comes and, and they're afraid. But Sunday's now coming. Sunday's here. And we see that continuing in our passage into chapter 28. It says, After the Sabbath, as the first day of the week was drawing, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, first of all, I hate that it's like, it's the other Mary. It would stink to be the other Mary, right? <laughs> Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. Sorry, that's just a little. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to view the, the tomb. 
And there was a violent earthquake because an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and approached the tomb. He rolled back the stone and was sitting on it. His appearance like lightning and his clothing was as white as snow. The guards were so shaken by fear of him that they became like dead men. And the angel told the women, do not be afraid because I know you are looking for Jesus who is crucified. He is not here for he has risen just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples he has risen from the dead and indeed he is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there. Listen, I have told you. So, departing quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, they ran to tell the disciples the news. Just then, Jesus met them and said, greetings. How cool is that, first of all? That's... They're running to go tell everybody, I think Jesus is risen. He's not there, right? There's angel, lightning, all this stuff. And they're running, and Jesus. They came up, took hold of his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus told them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to leave for Galilee, and they will see me there. That's cool. These are the words that I want us to focus on. He said, for he has risen just as he said. He's risen just as he said. This is true in the specific sense that Jesus actually predicted his own death and resurrection, right? He actually said several times, hey, I'm going to die. I'm going to rise again in three days, right? And it just still didn't, didn't click, right? So this is true in the sense that Jesus actually said, hey, I'm going to be resurrected on the third day. But this is also indicative of a greater biblical narrative that has been told throughout human history. The resurrection of Christ is woven as a tapestry throughout the entirety of Scripture. We see the resurrection story everywhere. It is painted on this canvas throughout history. Story after story of those that were once enslaved in their dead ways, but were risen again through the redemption of God's chosen people. We see this in all of these old Bible stories, right? All these heroes have the, this resurrection theme flowing throughout their lives. We see Noah that is preserved in the ark. Out of it, and, and then he's out of it once the floods are over. Jonah spends three days in the belly of a fish and is spit out to proclaim the repentance to a far-off nation. Daniel is shoved into a lion's den for his faithfulness to God and comes out three days later unscathed. Moses spends years in the wilderness before leading Israel out of slavery into the promised land. And David spends years pursued by enemies, hiding in a cave, only to come out the other side to lead Israel into a period of thriving. We see the resurrection all throughout Scripture. And all of these stories ultimately end in death. David died. Moses died. Noah died. Jonah died. All of them dead. So while all of these stories have resurrection theme, it's Jesus' story that culminates in the resurrection that never ends. All of these stories of deliverance, they all fall short, but they ultimately point towards our true north, Jesus. I want us to think of the entirety of the Old Testament as just this huge arrow pointing towards the cross pointing towards the cross and the resurrection. Everything, everything ultimately leading to this point. All of these narratives are but shadows of the gospel. They're shadows and they fall short. 
because Daniel may have come out of the lion's den, but that fact doesn't bring our soul out of despair when our family is being ripped apart by divorce. Jonah may have been delivered out of the belly of the fish, but that doesn't deliver us out of our addictions. David may have slain Goliath, but but that doesn't change the battle going on with our own fears and insecurities. Moses doesn't lead us out of slavery into slavery of sin and, and, and bring us into new life. I can't follow Moses there, but I can follow Jesus. Jesus is the greater Moses. Jesus is the greater Daniel. Jesus is the greater Noah and David. And I can't walk in David's triumphs over Goliath, but I can, I can share in Jesus' triumphs over sin and death. That is why Jesus is the greater David, is that I can't share in David's victories, but I can share in the resurrection and the victory of Jesus. And that is the difference between Jesus and all the other characters of the Bible. Jesus brings us into new life. And he allows us to share in his life. Jesus is the resurrection from the dead. He didn't just rise from the dead. He is the resurrection. And his spirit is in us. And now we have the resurrection flowing through us. And that's cool. Romans 6, verse 5 through 11 says this. For if we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, we will certainly also be in the likeness of his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that sin's dominion over the body may be abolished so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin since a person who has died is freed from sin's claims. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him because we know that Christ, having been raised from the dead, will not die again. Death no longer rules over him. Amen? For in light of the fact that he died, he died to sin once and for all. But in light of that fact that he lives, he lives to God. So you too consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ. The cross removes the sting of sin, but the resurrection removes the sting of death and offers the sweetness of life. The two together are the inheritance we have in Jesus. Not only that our sins would be forgiven, right? It's not just the fact that that God is this father that says, well, yeah, I guess I'll forgive you. There you go. Like, you're forgiven, right? I'm no longer going to punish you. That's moral neutrality, and God's not about that, right? It is grace upon grace for God, right? That he is not only going to justify our sins, but then he is also going to add new sweetness of life on top of that. Jesus said, I have come that they might have life and life more abundant. Amen? Not only that our sins would be forgiven, but we would step into this new life with God. And we get to see the resurrected life actually played out in the disciples. And I'll I'll read that to you once I finish up in our passage here. It says, As they were on their way, some of the guards came into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. After the priests had assembled with the elders and agreed on a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money and told them, Say this, His disciples came during the night and stole him while we were sleeping. If this reaches the governor's ears, we will deal with him and keep you out of trouble. 
they took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been spread amongst the Jewish people to this day. The eleven disciples traveled to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshipped, but some doubted. It says here that some of the disciples doubted. You know, the, the resurrection of Jesus is somewhat scandalous, is it not? Right? It's, it's, almost, it's, it's hard to believe. And there's a parallel story in John chapter 20 that we mentioned before that I'm going to read for you. Um, it's when Jesus visits the disciples before they go to Galilee, right? So Jesus visits a room of the disciples, the room's locked. It says here in John chapter 20, verse 19 through 21, he says this, When it was evening of that first day of the week, the disciples were gathered together with the doors locked because they feared the Jews. Jesus came, stood among them, and said to them, Peace be with you. Having said this, he showed them his hands and his side, so the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them, peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And after saying this, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, at first glance, this is kind of a weird interaction. I want you to imagine this. Just, you know, the Bible's allowed to be weird sometimes, right? It's allowed to be funky. So the the disciples, they lock the doors, right? Because they don't want anyone in. It doesn't say that Jesus knocked. It doesn't say that Jesus kind of burst through the doors. The doors are locked. They turn, and Jesus is just there, right? He just appears. And, and, and so, right? Like, he's just there. He just appears, breathes on them, leaves. It's kind of, it's this awkward interaction, right, that, that happens here. But this brief, seemingly awkward moment has such cosmic and profound meaning to it. It says that he, he said, peace to you. And he gave them this commission, and it says that he breathed on them. Read this with me in Genesis 2. It says this. Then the Lord God formed the man out of the dust from the ground and breathed the breath of life into his nostrils. And the man became a living being. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he placed the man that he had formed. Jesus breathing on his disciples mirrors this breathing of God, breathing through the nostrils of man to give him life. He created man out of the dust, out of the earth, formed him, and breathed life into him. Likewise, these disciples, in the lowest that they could possibly be at this moment, Jesus raises them from the dust, breathes new life into them, and says, receive the Holy Spirit. The word for the Holy Spirit, there's two words, there's ruah and pneuma, and I probably pronounced that wrong. But what it means, what it denotes is this kind of breath, pneuma, ruah. There's this breathing aspect, this breath of God. And when Christ died, he took the penalty for our sins. There was this exchanging of his righteousness for our unrighteousness, this swapping of identity that took place for a brief moment on the cross. And because of that righteousness that he has given us, we can now receive the Holy Spirit, that same spirit by which Jesus did his ministry and was raised from the dead. We get that. We get he who raised Christ from the dead, the Holy Spirit. In Romans 8.11, it says that the same Spirit that rose Christ from the dead now lives in you. The point here 
is that believing the resurrection of Christ is so much more than admitting that it happened to check a Christian theological box. The resurrection of Christ breathes new life into us. The resurrection of Christ is the life we live. It says that we are in Christ, right? We are in Christ. The Bible more so than it calls us Christians, it calls us those who are in Christ. In fact, Christian was a term that was given right, you know, by other people to describe us, but, but really we are called in Christ. And Christ said, I am the resurrection and the life. And so we get to be in that, we get to share in that. And that's why Paul says in Galatians 2.20 that is, I've been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Amen? The cross does away with the sting of sin, baggage, and failure. And the resurrection brings life with the Spirit of Christ. And it's such a sweet life. And there are, there are things that happen as a result of the resurrection. The resurrection means three things. One, it means that we are new creations. 1 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. And Jesus said that you cannot see the kingdom of God unless you are born again. There is this new life, this beautiful thing that has happened as a result of the cross and the resurrection. We live as completely new people. And let this be an encouragement for those of us who get stuck in this cycle of sin. Because what happens for me most often is that I'll sin once, realize I got away with it and that I kind of like it, right? And so I'll do it again, get away with it again, and then I'll do it a third time and it'll become a habit. And then I'll keep doing it and it will become just who I am. For those of you that have lived in any type of addiction or any type of habitual lying or whatever it might be for you, we start to mold it with our identities. The resurrection of Christ means that that old identity is done away with and crucified and buried in the ground where no one can find it. And the resurrection of Christ means that we are new creations in Christ Jesus, which means when that sin faces you, you get to say, but that's not who I am. That's not who I am anymore. You are literally a new person. And many of us believe that being a Christian means that there's almost this change in context and habits and, and, and different hobbies, perhaps, right? Where we think that, well, I'm a Christian now, which means I dress this way, I don't dress this way, I go to this on this day, and I don't say this anymore, and I listen to this music, but not that music anymore, right? That, that, we, that we change these physical parts of our identities, right? We, we change our habits, we change these things about us. But we're more trying to manufacture those changes, right? We're trying to manufacture that type of change. What Christ is saying here is that you are an entirely new creation, and that you simply get to just live that way. You get to walk in it. The second thing that the resurrection does, and what it means, is that it means we have new purpose. We have new purpose. This will be covered in the Great Commission next week. We'll talk about it more, but as, you know, take heart in the fact that our lives now get to be this extension of Christ's life, right? 
that we are in Christ. There's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That means that my mission, my purpose, my, my entire reason for being, my destiny, is all to fall in line with the will of God and to bring his kingdom here on earth. And let this be an encouragement to those of you that feel like you're in flux all the time. That you're in this balance of constant transition and constant new things and and new stimuli and new uh, commitments that you have to do and you feel like you can't really find out who you are. Your job keeps changing. Your family keeps shifting. People keep leaving. Whatever it might be that we feel like, that we, we can feel a sense of purposelessness. Let that be an encouragement to those of you like me, kind of those wandering millennials. I was like, oh, I have no clue what I'm doing, right? That, that there is this defined destiny for you. There is a defined purpose, right? We have purpose to know God intimately, to love Him deeply, and to find new and exciting ways to reconcile everything and everyone to Jesus. That's beautiful. The resurrection gives us purpose because we live in the life of Christ. The third thing it does, and the third thing it means, it means we have new power. We have new power in the resurrection. When John the Baptist, in uh, John chapter 1 and 2, when John the Baptist was baptizing people and he was preaching and proclaiming repentance to far-off Hebrews that had kind of fallen away, he was baptizing people, he started to accumulate quite a, quite a big following, right? He, he started to accumulate this very large following of people. And the words that he said were so scandalous and so new and so life-giving that people actually started to ask him, are you the Messiah? Who are you? Are you the Messiah? Have you come to redeem us? Have you come to et cetera, et cetera? And he could have easily kind of owned that and taken whatever following that he had accumulated and create a little revolution of his own. I bet some people would have benefited from it too. He could have taken the following of thousands and thousands of people that he had and just kept them to himself and said, all right, guys, well, we got a good little following going on here. Let's start a social revolution. He could have easily done that. But when he was asked about his ministry, when he was asked if he was the Messiah, he said this, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Ultimately, the ministry of people only reaches as far as the power of the people. But the ministry of God reaches as far as eternity. The ministry of people only reaches as far as the power of people, but the ministry of God reaches as far as eternity. And John knew this in his bones. He knew this in his bones that as wonderful as his efforts were, they paled in comparison to the might of Christ's resurrection power. That whatever thing he would have started, as good as it might have been, the one who came before him was mightier than him. That whatever he might do, whatever he might be capable of, Jesus could do far greater. And this is the type of new power we get to live in, church. We get to live in the newness of saying, 
whatever I am capable of pales in comparison to what Jesus is capable of in me. That Holy Spirit power is what will fuel your ministry, what will fuel the redemption of your family. It's what will fuel just how you interact with people, your heart, your bitterness that you've been accumulating up. You don't have to muster up enough power in and of yourself to change your environment around you, but the power of the Holy Spirit, that is what will move. That is what will make an impact in and through you. The pre-resurrection disciples followed Jesus, but they had no power. They had no might of their own and no amount of bravery to face the trials of the world and actually be effective. Yet the post-resurrection disciples, they had the Holy Spirit. They had the Holy Spirit, and we are here today because the Holy Spirit dwelled in them and used them. Isn't that crazy? Billions of Christians throughout all of human history just because the Holy Spirit dwelt in just a few dudes fishermen. And so that Holy Spirit that dwells within you, the amount of impact that is, that, that is capable there, that's where the power comes from. The power is the Holy Spirit. In church, if we as believers have that access to that power, that ought to encourage us. That ought to embolden us. That the same Spirit that rose Christ from the dead dwells in you. Let that be a liberating thing for you. Let that burden just wash off of your shoulders. That what you do is water compared to the fire of Jesus. And that's beautiful. You have the resurrection flowing through you. You have resurrection power in and through you, moving and desiring to shake up the world. Shake up our insecurities, shake up our shortcomings. This is something we rejoice in and we cherish in and we are emboldened by. Amen, church? Amen. Will you pray with me? Jesus, we want to declare right now that all power and all glory and all authority is yours. That everything that we can muster up in ourselves, everything that we have accumulated in our lives, we know that the person that comes after us is mightier than us. Jesus, that your resurrection power is mightier than any strength we can muster up within ourselves, Lord that you have made us new creations with new identities that we can walk in, that we have new purpose in you, we have a new destiny in you, that we have direction and guidance by your Holy Spirit. And the same Spirit that rose Christ from the dead, Lord, that, that dwells in us, Lord, may we sit in that, may we receive that this morning. Pray for power and boldness as we go out. Resurrect those parts of our hearts, Lord, that have remained dead. And God, as, as we seek your face, as we worship, empower us, Lord. For those of us that are wrestling with insecurities and shortcomings and identity issues, may we walk in your resurrection this morning, knowing that 
We do not worship a dead God. But our God is alive and willing and with us and, and coming after our hearts. We love you. We praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.